0: Welcome to The Monkey Dish, a podcast for those that want a little bit
1: more from the kitchen. I'm Link Clark, your host. Join me as I talk to chefs in Austin, Texas, especially if you've ever asked yourself what happens back in the kitchen, because we're going back there. Chefs work hard and don't have much time, so in order to chat with them, I'll meet them at their restaurant, which means you'll hear all kinds of noises, from dishwashers to squirrels. But I hope you find some random noises worth it because these chefs are doing great work in a tough industry and it's paying off as Austin continues to gain national attention for our food scene. So the Monkey Dish is a space for them to share their stories. The restaurant industry has always done right by me, working off and on in it since I was 15, all over the country, and it becomes addictive in a way. There's an energy, the team, the production of it all, and knowing every day at work was going to bring something new and unexpected. I hope you'll find our conversations on the monkey dish. If you do too. Uh, here with Todd Duplanchamp. Duplanchant, Duplanchant that, yeah. Do, all right, I did my best. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a tough one for everybody. Um, founder, owner, operator, everything, really, for uh, Lenoir, right?
0: Yes, correct. Uh, my, my wife and I started this in 2011, so we're eight years old now. Wow, old old timers.
1: Congrats! Thanks. Did you did you ever imagine you'd be able to run a restaurant like? consistently for eight years that's that's pretty unheard it's of
0: such a long time whenever you say it yeah uh, in doing it it's been like so fast yeah um to whenever i tell people like oh it's eight years old they're like wow and it's like wow for me too because uh, you know we're about you know eight years old we're we're coming in on 10 years a 10 year old restaurant that's like a, an established old restaurant yeah and you know, parts of it do feel old. <laughs> I I feel older and older, but also <laughs> it, it, it's it's blown by. Lived in Austin for twelve years, yeah, maybe thirteen now, and that's another thing. I've never lived, I've never worked anywhere that long, mm-hmm. and I've never lived anywhere that long as an adult. Yeah. So, yeah, it's uh, it's kind of mind-boggling <laughs> at this point.
1: How be. do you stay engaged? Because that's, I mean, that's one of the things that. Uh, coming from restaurants and talking to a lot of folks in the industry, you like to be engaged because you're excited about food and sharing it. Like, you don't want to get stagnant. So how do you prevent that?
0: Well, the format of this restaurant really makes it not stagnant. We're a farm and table restaurant and we take that very seriously. Mm. But we're also, you know, not a typical farm and table restaurant where it's like, oh, we found perfect tomatoes and we're just going to salt them and put them on a plate. We're also trying to take farm produce and anything meat fish whatever it is and I don't know if push the envelope is really necessarily the right thing but like if we can if we can make something interesting like garum or or, Mm. um, miso or something like that then we're gonna try Mm. Um, so we're trying to take a that next step and be creative within kind of the limited range that we have Mm -hmm. although like we were discussing the, the range is less limited now than it was when we moved here. Now there's things popping up all the time that I'm kind of astounded or are here.
1: Yeah, well, go into that a little bit more. So, when you first got here ten years ago or twelve years ago, you're um, you might hear some squirrels. By the way, we're out in this back patio. Um, twelve years ago, you decided to, to get this off the ground. Like, how many farmers were you even able to work with like, in the region?
0: You know, there there were really solid farmers 12 years ago, there was five, six maybe. Um, and then, you know, of that five or six, there was two that were probably like the upper echelon. Really, their their produce was always nice. They never put out anything that was blemished or anything like that. No, granted, those were also the most expensive farmers. <laughs> yeah. um, and now smash cut to, now There's there's farmers, it's the same as the restaurant business. There's farmers that I've never heard of Mm. That I've never met. That would that was not happening mm. 12 years ago. I knew every single farmer. I knew, you know, I visited half their farms. Things mm. like that. Like everything was heavily vetted. I, I was really engaged because the other thing about coming here 12 years ago is you would go to the farmers market and every stall would be the same. Mm. It was the same stall over and over and over. And one of the first things that I learned when t- in talking to the farmers was, well, this is what people tell us that they want. So and they were talking about the public because that's mostly yeah. who they were selling to. They yeah. weren't selling a bunch to restaurants.
1: Was this just downtown? This or, was downtown. Yeah.
0: The the kind of nicer places like Boggy Creek and stuff like that. They were selling to restaurants. So they did have a better variety mm-hmm. and wider variety of things that they offered. Um, but downtown, it was it was the same stall over and over mm-hmm. and over. All six of them or eight of them. So. They were very engaging and want. They're like, "Tell us what to grow. Hmm. We're just, we just come to the market and this is what people buy. So this is what we continue to grow." Right. So then, being a chef and coming from New York, I was like, "Oh, grow this and grow that," and throwing a bunch of things at them. And then they would, of course, like write it down, take it off, and do their farmer math on it, and mm-hmm. go, "Oh, well, this is when we had to plant romanesco, and this is when we plant all these different things." Um, And then they would try it and it would work or it wouldn't work because the climate here is way different. And that's what kind of led me to opening this restaurant, which is hot weather, what we call hot weather food. Because moving from New York, the seasons are the seasons. Mm -hmm. You have winter squash in the winter, (laughs) the the apples come in the fall and they last through early spring. You have berries in the summertime and tomatoes in the summertime. It's like what everybody quintessentially thinks Mm -hmm. of as the seasons, the Mm -hmm. four seasons. Well, you come down here, and it's all over the place. You know, uh, apples come in August, which instead of September, October, November, and they're here for a month, and that's it. Mm-hmm. Not, not anymore, because now we have more apple growers. But that's how it was. Like, you had two weeks for apples. Per yeah. <laughs> Winter squash comes in the middle of summer. Yeah. Um, berry season, February, mm-hmm. right? So it was just like, it was crazy, and then, Then I was trying to get these farmers to to work with me and and grow things for me, Mm. which they were more than happy to do, just for some diversity. Mm. But we kept having failure, 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 because I'm not a farmer, and I'm telling them to grow things that they'd never heard of before. So they don't know if it's gonna work here. And so they would try something, and then they would bring it to me, and they'd be like, "Here it is," and I'd be like, "That's not it." <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> Do you remember I, one of them offhand? I'm curious. Um, Romanesco was one of the yeah. first things. Uh, it kind of really sticks in my mind. Yeah. Um, and I remember I uh, I can't remember who the farmer's what the farm's name was, but they they um, they were thoroughly confused by it. Hmm. It never headed up. It like. It, And then when it did, it was like these little tiny things and Mm -hmm. they brought them and they were like, is this right? And why do they look so weird and stuff like that? And I was like, it's, that's definitely not right. And I, you know, I bought it anyway, but it was too small and, you know, cauliflowers and broccoli and all that stuff are essentially bud clusters. Mm -hmm. So it was starting to bolt and all this other stuff. It wasn't really great. (laughs) Um, But it was, you know, trial and error. And then I, like I said, I formulated this idea of, instead of trying to f- tell the farmers what i w- want them to grow yeah from far flung places i would i started with the farmers and said let's figure out what grows well here yeah and then let's just you guys grow that let's play to your strengths mm-hmm. and the strengths of of texas and heat and plants so let's start looking in these hot places mm-hmm. these hot and dry places for plants that produce well in the conditions that we have here mm-hmm. and so then, you know, we started trying to work on that together with some, some specific farms with varying degrees of su- success mm-hmm. again. But it started formulating this idea of how, in my mind, how we should be eating here and what we should be eating here. Mm-hmm. And it is a lot more Mediterranean, Southeast Asian, uh, you know, North African than it is German, mm-hmm. which is what we have been doing for right. a long time, right? right? So like heavy meats and... and and heavy food in a lot of ways, which is which is still great and wonderful. But moving back here and I grew up here, moved back here and as an adult and trying to like go and enjoy the foods that I had when I was a teenager and then still like function mm-hmm. was impossible. Like you can't <laughs> go eat barbecue and then like walk out of the restaurant and it's 110 yeah. and you're gonna go to work. It's yeah. like, no, you're not going anywhere, you're yeah. going to bed. Yeah. You're, you're toast. <laughs> and so those things all kind of came together in this idea of like, you gotta be doing lighter food, mm. more raw food, and then really, and then if you start looking at what grows in these regions, mm-hmm. um, it all starts to kind of dovetail together, Yeah. right? So lots of citrus, lots of peppers, Yeah. Um, spicy food spiced food yeah. hot food brothy things not a lot of cream not a lot of butter yeah you know then you're off to the races
1: did that uh did any of the roles you had in new york four seasons or tabla like help inform that i mean tabla seems like a natural one tabla, absolutely
0: yeah. the way that we were cooking there at tabla and uh at the bread bar was hot weather food yeah you know so much of it yeah. it wasn't heavy food it wasn't cream and butter it was a lot more raw food and spiced and spicy, and realistically, a lot more geared towards this climate. Mm -hmm. Um, Because
1: it's specifically South Indian for
0: for our listeners. Yes. South Indian. The chef, uh, Floyd, uh, his family is from Goa, so he was heavily influenced by Goan food, but also has a wide, a very broad knowledge of of Indian food Mm -hmm. in general. Um, But we did skew kind of Southern Indian more Mm -hmm. than anything, which... That was another thing that really influenced me in this restaurant, and then subsequently in my other restaurant, was this idea of um, how foods make it around the world mm. and the food history of things and yeah. why people eat the way that they eat. Yeah, um, which is a whole another probably three podcasts. But <laughs> uh, but it's it's very intriguing whenever you start looking at food history and mm-hmm. you know the Portuguese. Yeah, uh, the bastards. Yeah, around the world, around the world, and and took things from every place and made you know the first kind of global mm. uh food economy mm-hmm. which is you know, crazy to think of right? indian food without potatoes yeah and tomatoes and chilies right. yeah right yeah. like that is indian food <laughs> well you know before 1500 it wasn't that's right and now it's it's uh, tradition mm-hmm. and it's uh authentic which is a word that I just love to hate I just will just bash on authentic all day because it's not authentic yeah it's forced yeah but because it was forced 500 years ago now it's authentic right authentic Italian food is tomatoes and blah, 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 right blah, blah, blah. what happened bef- what was authentic before that was authentic right we're, we were making for a while we were making like a guinea hen gumbo oh nice um but it's not like it's one of those things that people would definitely come in. Any one of my family would come in and slap me in the face. But right, it's gumbo, man. <laughs> because it, we would make gumbo in kind of a traditional way, and then go through this lengthy process to clarify it, which gumbo is not. Oh here. no,
1: definitely right? not. In fact, that like that would make it seem like you rushed it.
0: Right. So you we would try and infuse all that. Uh, rue flavor and all those different wonderful unctuous things and the trinity into a solution essentially into a gumbo and then we would take that and try and clear as much of the oh. muddiness out i mean it was still very dark sauce mm-hmm. but it was it was like a brothy um very red like oh. in that kind of roasted flour at a certain point turns this kind of interesting red color yeah
1: like a red um, eye gravy kind of yeah, like thing
0: but but broth
1: but broth Huh.
0: So it was cool. We did it for, probably did it for a month or two.
1: Did you get any pushback from any of the customers? Oh, that sure. People yeah. would
0: people would push back all the time. Yeah. Who cares? <laughs> I mean, it's just like, hey, we're doing what we're doing. Yeah. Was it good? Yeah. Like, that's the only thing for me is if you don't like it it's yeah. because it's not good, then yeah. it's something different. Right. But if you're like, that's not gumbo. Well, how was it? Well, it was delicious. Well, great. I will it. <laughs>
1: That's funny, because that's something I've always, like, Like moving here from New York, I've always been impressed with folks that have a prefix, because there's a level of trust that you need in your diners to, to go with you, right? Yeah. As you, you tell them, like, I'll take care of this, mm-hmm. just, you know, you, you'll enjoy it. Yeah. Were you scared about that? Like, were you worried?
0: I mean, there was, I, I was worried that whenever we opened the restaurant that nobody was going to come, mm. because of a lot of things. So... The, the restaurant's two-thirds communal seating. Um, and that was certainly not a thing eight years ago. Mm. It's tiny. It's like a New York City restaurant. Thing. yeah, in mean, you are. It's tucked in there. it's, I mean, it's like the a size of
1: a I was gonna say yeah, go ahead.
0: It's a five hundred the the dining room is five hundred square feet maybe yeah um, and it's got a bar in it and it's got four servers and we fit thirty two seats into it. So it's, you can dine at the bar, which is communal. There's a long communal table in the middle. There's two four-tops and three two-tops, and that's the whole thing. So between that and the prefix, only prefix menu, um, I was like, in the fact that I'd been working in town for five years, but I still didn't really think like anybody knew who the hell I was because mm. I was the chef of a hotel, and you know it wasn't like the chef of a, one of the more famous restaurants in town or anything. And so I was certain, like, no one's coming. Mm-hmm. We're gonna have to like really run this thing tight and kiss, shake every hand and kiss every baby that comes in here. Um, and luckily, it w- it wasn't that way. You know, we were we've been pretty busy since since the very beginning. Mm. Um, so so it worked, but I didn't think it was gonna work.
1: Mm. Um, Just that combination: small size, doing something a little different,
0: not having a name. I mean, I grew up here, right? So yeah. the quintessential Texas restaurant to me is. It's giant, yeah, and it's half empty. Huge parking lot. You pull your car right up to the front. You get out, you walk up, and you say, uh, there's two of us. Yeah, And they say, yeah, right this way, and they take you to a four-top, mm-hmm. right? And you sit two people at a four-top, and that's how it Your space, man. Mm-hmm. I'm not sitting at a two-top, me and yeah. you. Hell no, Stretch I, don't out. Like, I don't like being that close to any man. You know, that kind of stuff, where it's like, I need my space, and mm. if you, if somebody was like, Oh, well, there's a wait. I'm like, wait? Yeah. I'm, I'm out of here. Mm. Make me wait. Or make me go somewhere else and park. Yeah. And, and we, you know, whenever I was the chef of the Four Seasons, we ran into that all the time. It was a giant restaurant that was half empty. People liked it, um, but it wasn't really ever full. We never really went on a wait. Mm. Uh, and whenever we changed from surface parking, which there was always a parking lot there, and they tore it down, they tore up the parking lot to put in a high rise. Mm-hmm. People, oh my god, you would have thought.
1: Mm. That's uh, probably a different level of clientele Four Seasons in New York, too. Or was it, I mean, here, here. oh, here, yeah, oh,
0: yeah,
1: oh wow, even then, though, I guess, probably, right? Like, sort of traditional, like, certain traditional. expectations, yeah,
0: yeah. No, it, and it was, it was Texans, you yeah, know, people that, that were used to eating out in Texas, yeah, which is big restaurants, half empty, no weights. I pull my car up, mm. I park myself. You're not parking my car for me. Thank you very much. That kind of stuff, you know, mm-hmm. that LA and things like that. And now, and this restaurant was tiny, like I said, 500 square feet. I and mean, we did have plenty of people the first six months that walked in and were like, nope. <laughs> just walked right back out. And they're like, it's all we got. Yeah. Um, we're, you know, Little mom and pop trying to make it work. Yeah. But, and they would, and people would be like, you don't have, you know, we still don't have backs on the chairs and the communal seating, it's just oh, a stool. Yeah. yeah. And they're like, I'm not sitting on the stool. It's like, That's all we got. Yeah. And uh, they're like, you should make big, comfortable chairs. Like, big, comfortable chairs don't fit in here, Right.
1: What would happen to your menu prices if you reduced it by half? I mean, it would be
0: a (laughs) 12-seat restaurant if you made it, you know, like the quintessential old Texas restaurant. Yeah. But that's changed now. Now it is more um, compact everywhere. Mm -hmm. There are more small restaurants like ours where you don't have all the room in the world, and people are fine with it.
1: Yeah. Well, more was that adventure. a turning point like the people became fine with that or like yeah. have diners changed I guess
0: diners have definitely changed people who come to the restaurant have definitely changed yeah um yeah it's I mean, it's just newcomers mm. right? a lot more people from out of town um at the Four Seasons which is a, a hotel restaurant we still got tons of locals mm. um and not a whole and when I say locals I mean people that have lived here for a long time yeah know lived in Austin for 10 or 15 or 20 or 40 years at that point yeah now we um, we get less of those and more people that have lived here for a couple of years mm-hmm. or even people that are just coming to visit yeah so yeah the diners have changed and the diners are um, you know they're coming in from the coast and even if they're not coming in from the coast they're coming in from larger cities than Austin Yeah. Um, so they just have a a different mentality to a a certain extent Mm. Um, they're not better or worse than like the the old school Austin diners that were here forever they're just different yeah you know
1: well I mean uh, every person comes with their benefits and Mm -hmm. pains if you will like you know the new diners also taking pictures of stuff and i'm sure you didn't have to do that at the four seasons
0: yeah there was not <laughs> there there wasn't a ton of food photography happening in the dining room and that's another thing whenever we opened this place eight years ago now i think that people really think about their dining room and the, and how they're gonna structure the lighting situation mm. based on taking photographs of food mm. because we just certainly didn't think about it. We were, yeah. like, we're gonna have it dark and kind of Roasty hues And yeah. stuff like that very It's very romantic Your, your it's spot It's very romantic But it you you can't find A worse place To take a picture mm. Of a plate of food And people are always Taking pictures of food <laughs> And you know Putting them up And I'm always just like You know <laughs> Bringing my hands Going that looks terrible <laughs> It just looks Because it's just Not the right It's not the right environment But You know It's what we built Yeah With the new restaurant It's a lot brighter
1: Well yeah Tell me a little bit more About that So it's Vic, Vixen's Wedding Vixen's Wedding Yeah And it's Great. in a hotel too Right
0: yeah, it's in the Arrive Hotel. The Arrive uh, Hotel Company is a, kind of an upstart hotel company out of California. Mm. And they have a really, so I, I worked in the hotel business for a while, left it and it was like, I'm never going back to the hotel business. <laughs> um, and I talked with those guys and I was like, yeah, you know, I don't think that I'm probably not the right person um, for this, but.
1: Do they, they approached you?
0: Yeah, they just uh, called me one day oh, wow. or texted me one day, and um, and they were like, "Well, let let us talk to you about what we do first before you say no." And the hotel business has a lot of downsides because of things that we kind of already discussed: the mm-hmm. continuity and um, the the person who's staying in the hotel is the ultimate guest for them. So whatever they say goes. So. And food and beverage has always comes second and standards for that stuff always come second. Mm. And usually it's about who's staying in the rooms and banquets. And then you can have a nice restaurant, but it's always kind of beholden to the other things, and you kind of have to do whatever it is. You're, you're always kind of compromising.
1: Mm.
0: Um, and what these guys came with was we're not about that. We want to have you we want you to run really cool, interesting F and B, and we're gonna run a hotel. Okay. Uh, so you're you independent of almost independent of each other. You don't have to do anything that you don't want to, uh, you know, you, a normal restaurant, hotel, uh, hotel restaurant, it's going to be open breakfast, lunch, and dinner. That's, that's how it is. Yeah. Every single one, seven days a week. Um, and it's really, really difficult. This is why most hotel restaurants are terrible is that it's very difficult to have continuity of design and of food of everything from breakfast through dinner. You know, you have restaurants that you design and build a, a platform for that are breakfast and lunch restaurants, right? Because those, the daytime, the sun, the, the feeling of the place all fit in with that concept. Mm-hmm. And then you have a, something that's a dinnertime restaurant, like this thing. Mm-hmm. It's a dinnertime restaurant that it feels like someplace that you're going to go later in the day and in the afternoon and the evening, right? And the food reflects that. And the service style reflects that. And the uniforms, the people that worked, everything. There's so much, so many intricacies that go into this. So if you're gonna have a place that's gonna be open breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you're gonna be compromising one way or the other. Um, or realistically, both ways, which doesn't work. Um, and so they were like, yeah, you wanna have a dinner-only restaurant? Then make it a dinner-only restaurant. Or you wanna you know, do brunch or don't do brunch. And, and, the, and the real kicker for me was like, I was like, what about room service? And they're like, "You want to do room service?" And I said, "No, I don't want to do room right. service. Room service is is terrible. Yeah, in my opinion, um, even the, the best of the best room services out there is not good. Yeah, most of the food that you want to do isn't meant to travel. Yeah, in a hot box.
1: Grilled cheese going up an elevator for yeah, 10, or 15 a minutes. Like the quintessential <laughs>
0: thing that you want when you're anywhere. Yeah, like a hamburger or a pizza. Yeah, it's like a hamburger is served best this is a, one of my just like ultimate pet peeves that I'm always harping on the, the amazing thing about a hamburger is that it's hot and cold yeah right? that's what makes a hamburger great you have like hot meat hot cheese hot bun cold lettuce cold tomatoes cold onions yeah right um, that's a that's really you gotta be able to make it and serve it right then mm-hmm. you can't hold it you can't let it sit you can't do all these other things and the kind of Gymnastics that you have to do to be able to pull that off and send it up to someone's room—it's gonna degrade. Mm. It's just—it's gonna degrade no yeah. So, at any rate, didn't want to do room service. Now, like, fine, no room service. Mm. So and no banquets. Banquet food is another one that's just really make difficult. 40 steaks. 40? <laughs> I mean, at the Four Seasons, make a thousand steaks. We do 1,700 covers on Thanksgiving. Nope, wow. That's a, that's a lot of turkey, man.
1: That is a lot of turkey. Um that's that's almost like uh being on a ship like in the navy or something. Or yeah, in a cruise ship, ship. like oh. in terms of numbers like that.
0: Yeah, huge yeah. numbers. I mean, it was it was a it was a hell of a day. Christmas, New Year's day, Christmas New Year's Day, Thanksgiving, Mother's Day. Man,
1: how did you like learn into that role because working at a, you know, place in new york it's not necessarily going to prep you for that for knowing how to do 1700 covers on thanksgiving like that's
0: no um so i have a lot of really nice new york city high high high-end experience but i started off in you know dallas texas Mm. uh, barbecue place and i worked for 10 years at like kind of mid-tier good but mid-tier restaurants because those were in the towns that I lived in were like the nicer restaurants. Mm -hmm. Realistically, they were kind of, you know, mid-tier restaurants. Okay. Um, And you would do, I learned about doing volume at those places. Got it. I mean, you do volume. You get hammered as a line cook. You get hammered as a prep cook. Um, Because that's the way that those restaurants operate. Mm -hmm. And you know, there's still those types of restaurants out there that are kind of that um, upscale, middle of the road restaurant. Mm -hmm. But they're, you know, they're gonna they're gonna do 550 covers.
1: That's um, how they do their business, right? That's how
0: they do their business. Yeah. That's also how they have like a big kind of steakhouse, steak and chop house concept. Or you know, it's like we're, those restaurants. We were trying our best. We were doing a good job with within a very specific realm mm-hmm. of you know steak, potatoes, and vegetable kind of plates. Mm-hmm. You know, we would. Play around with the sauces. How say we're going to flavor potatoes. <laughs> yeah. now, kind of, this is like, you know, the '90s. So it's like, <laughs> you know, it was a lot of uh, a lot of food that's thankfully gone away. Yeah, yeah. They, but those places still exist. Yeah. They still I eat mean, them in exits in Austin. Yeah, and so I, you know, I don't I don't begrudge that experience because that experience really helped me later whenever I got to Michelin starred restaurants and fine dining. Because so many people that had come up through Michelin Stars and stuff like that, they didn't know how to move their ass mm-hmm. and just put out food now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did. Mm. And I could cook circles around most of those guys because I learned the volume part first mm. and learned how to move in a kitchen and be very efficient. And then I learned finesse. Mm. And then I learned like how to food concept and why we're doing what we're doing where things come from sourcing and all those other things hmm. um which was really uh, the way to do it yeah in retrospect yeah uh, it took me 25 years
1: and, and it wasn't was, necessarily a plan i assume oh, like you oh, just no. come across things it, right at
0: that point you know i was living in the midwest i was living in texas and, and denver and atlanta for a little while yeah and those were the restaurants yeah you know it, I eventually ended, in, ended up in New York because I was—I didn't want to work in those restaurants. Uh. I wanted to work in the best restaurants in the country, and those restaurants did not exist in mm. Denver, and in uh, Atlanta, and in Dallas, or anywhere. Now, just like we're talking mm-hmm. about, they do exist in places like Austin, Texas. Really great restaurants mm-hmm. exist here, but only over the course of the last probably eight, it's, it's five, seven, eight years. Mm-hmm. Right? If you wanted to work in a really great restaurant, you had to move to New York. Chicago or San Francisco, maybe, Maybe LA, maybe, Yeah. but really New York, that yeah. was it. And so I moved to New York because I want. I, I did this thing where I would work in a restaurant and then I would get promoted to sous chef and then I would put that sous chef job and get a line cook job in a better restaurant. Oh wow. And I did that and did that and did that for a long time in the U S and then finally I was like, forget this, I'm just going to go to New York. Restaurants that I, I can, and yeah, it was great.
1: Yeah, did you? You just discovered once you got promoted to sous chef, you were like, "All right, I peaked here." Essentially, like there was uh, I need to, else I did. to, to learn. Right. There area. was nothing,
0: and then you really, you know, you to a certain extent, the grass is always greener, or whatever mm-hmm. it is. But um, you know, once you, the learning curve of of everything, you start a job, the learning curve is very steep, but. At most places, it plateaus mm-hmm. pretty quickly. And then it's like, okay, I can move up the ladder, get paid more, become the chef, and advance my career, or I can advance my learning, mm. and my technique, and my ability to do other things. And yeah. I did that forever. I, the first the, the first restaurant that I was ever the chef of, and there was nobody above me, was this restaurant. Is that really? Yeah. Wow. And I've been cooking for years, and years, and years. When I was the chef of the Four Seasons, there was still a hotel chef. The yeah. Um, and before that, I would only been sous chef. I'd been executive sous chef. I'd worked for, like, worked my way up to being really good positions in in good restaurants. Mm. But yeah, the, uh, the my first official like chef job was this job. Wow.
1: Yeah. That's crazy. It is. Would you? Um, I guess. Would you say that, that that part was hard, the transitioning to your own place, in terms of now you're not necessarily, are you cooking every day? Like what's changed about now becoming the chef now, of, and owning well, your own place? So
0: whenever I started as the chef of beer, yes, I was everything. Yeah. Uh, you know, doing all the cooking, cleaning, everything. Soup to nuts. <laughs> but whenever I started the first day of culinary school, the chefs in that, and my, my instructors were like, this has got, one of the highest suicide rates Divorce rates Every night, every weekend, every holiday You're going to work You're not going to get paid a fucking thing You better be here because you want to be here mm-hmm. Because if you think you're going to get rich and famous You're not If you think that uh, you know Somehow you're going to Be something That uh, above and beyond Like a worker in this industry For forever And divorced mm-hmm. and suicidal i guess is what they were kind of telling me then you're in the wrong room that was day one of culinary school and i was like fuck you i'm gonna prove you wrong that was my mentality and i think that was the mentality of frankly a lot of people in my generation like Uh, you don't know me i'm gonna i'm gonna show you i'm gonna work hard i'm gonna get there because that's what I, I, i was raised on that stuff you work hard enough you do enough and you're good enough you can get wherever you yeah I think the subsequent like generations they listened, which is not a not a knock on them people were like that's a really hard industry man you're gonna work all the time you're never gonna see your family you want to you get married you want kids You want to have, have money don't get into that industry and instead of being like I'm gonna show you they were like you know what that's probably right <laughs> and they were like I'll go do something else <laughs> and so the amount of people coming into this business is way less really yeah Way less people coming into it um, to work and work their way up, and because that's the other thing is you're going to work for years doing this before anything happens, and it's going to and it's loud and dirty and sweaty and hot and dangerous and
1: you can develop some pretty bad habits in the (laughs) industry too. Tons of bad habits
0: and yeah,
1: late nights. Yeah, so. Wait, so I want to hear more about the silver bullet. I'm sure there's potentially <laughs> so a few of them. What have you, uh, what kind of, and what's the time, too? I, We're good. Okay. Um,
0: can, can we just take one break? I want to just yeah, have, yeah. A, have a, uh, yeah, yeah. a stock down. I just want to sure. make
1: sure it's not boiling up. Actually, do you mind if I join?
0: Whenever I learned in school to make stock, you took your bones and you roast them or you didn't roast them. And then you put them in and you cook the shit out of them. And then you strain it off and then boom, you had stock. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, at Boulet or the Danube and at Tabla, you would make a first stock out of usually bones or um, in this case, I've used like scrap pieces of like tendon and and stuff like that um, to make an initial flavored broth and then you take that flavored broth and when you're making your second stock out of bones or whatever it is that you're making it out of instead of adding water to it you add that first stock to it so you compound the flavors and then leveling huh yeah okay so then this is basically the water that's going to go into the second stock potentially if i do that and then you would make potentially a third stock or consomme or um sauce from that Hmm. and what what it's a it's a simple. Well it's a, I mean, it's it's simple. It's time consuming, but it's simple in um, in its setup. But the difference in what you get at the end is completely different. Yeah, yeah. that's where people are coming in. And they're like, where do you get all these flavors from? Because this is a mom and pop and a and. A farm-to-table restaurant, we have to figure out what we're doing with all those other pieces mm-hmm. and how we're going to incorporate them, usually in the same dish, mm-hmm. or if not, in some other thing. Okay. So... The
1: so how far farm- along is this idea? Like, have you already, so in this, your mind, got to the I end? Got the,
0: I got the... So where this whole thing started is that we have Mexican plums here that... Um, there are Mexican plum trees in a lot of the parks in mm-hmm. Austin, and they're like a, an ornamental tree. Uh, But every year, they make these little Mexican plums.
1: Oh, they're about the size of two thumb ends, maybe, right? I've
0: seen those. I mean, they're 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 like tiny. tiny. Yeah. Um, And they bear fruit almost every year, and they just litter the ground, right? Um, But they're delicious. They're not like a plum that you're going to eat, really, but um, because they're mostly seed. Like, a lot of the foraging stuff that you get is... The reason it's a foraging plant and not a cultivated plant is because the yields are not great and Mm -hmm. it takes a lot to deal with it yeah so um i've been wanting to do this uh, this thing since probably a year or two years ago where i take the plums and i make essentially plum sauce with it Hmm. so like mushu pork plum sauce Mm -hmm. so i'm just taking that concept of mushu pork and plum sauce starting with the plum sauce and then i was like okay so mushu pork you got like the crepes and cabbage and pork and whatever and plum sauce which is the plum sauce is what makes it good in Mm -hmm. my opinion so i was like well, start with the plum sauce and then i'll just kind of go backwards from there so i'm gonna make crepes like herb crepes that are gonna go down and then roast off i don't know at this point i'm probably gonna i made some smoked miso out of uh iron and clay peas which are these peas that that they have their own long story but um I took made some miso and then smoked it, and then I'm gonna probably coat the, some pork in that and then roast it mm. and then that'll be the pork the mushu pork part, and then this I don't know yet, like I don't know how this is gonna get incorporated into this it might not it might get incorporated into something else, mm-hmm.
1: um but you knew not to pass up the oh no you yeah, this is this right?
0: is i mean this is the thing, this is the good parts, as the chefs are always saying like, mm-hmm. this is. I definitely grew up. That's definitely a Cajun thing. Like, all the parts yeah. that people you, that you want to throw away, those are the good parts. Yeah. And it, it's a pain in the ass to deal with them.
1: Yeah. But... But the smell coming from the stock pot is... It's delicious. It's amazing. Right? Yeah. Is there so, anything about this process that you feel like you could share with the, the home cook who just likes to, you know, dabble a little bit? Like, obviously, nobody's going to break down tendon from, you know, half a hog or something. But, like, mm-hmm. that philosophy, like, is there anything you could...
0: You know, so at my house, we're constantly roasting chickens, Uh and the the number one thing I would tell people is like, get a whole chicken, cook it, eat it, and save the bones. Put them in a Ziploc bag and put them in the freezer. And when you have four or five, make a stock. It's not difficult, and then you'll have stock first of all, or you'll have a whole meal from that. Mm. Like all these, buy, (laughs) you know, it's a it's a pain in the ass at the beginning to buy something whole and deal with it rather than just being like now we're at a point with with everything with cooking where people are like i want to buy a four ounce piece of salmon and go home and cook it and have zero waste you're missing out you want all those pieces you want to go to the store first of all don't buy salmon but you want to go to the store and get a whole bronzino and don't just cook the whole thing whole, but, like, break it down mm. and, and save the bones or make a fish fumet or do whatever. Like, that is where not only good food is or great food, even at home, but that's where, you know, costs really start to come in line. Mm. That four-ounce portion of salmon that you buy whenever you disregard the rest of that, the rest of that salmon is costing you what a whole fish will cost you that you can turn into two meals or three meals, right? Yeah. Um, and it makes you a better cook because whenever you make chicken stock or some sort of stock like this, and you're like, oh, I will just, I'm just i going to whip something up. People are always amazed that you can just whip something <laughs> up. Well, now what I would suggest to people is like, you got a uh, slow cooker or a pressure cooker or an instant pot. Mm-hmm. You can make stock. You can put it on, leave for work, come. It's done. You know, you just strain it off. It, it, it is... Not too difficult, and then you could strain it off, put it back in the pressure cooker, put pork parts in there, pressure cook it for another fifteen minutes. It's done. Add noodles to it. You're finished. Yeah. And all of that stuff, like let's say pork parts and and chicken carcasses, like this is a free meal. Yeah. Essentially, it's pennies on the dollar. Right. Yeah. And probably one of the better meals that you'll have. Yeah. Than we.
1: Well, is that, is that essentially the argument of the, the doing it yourself is, like, at the end of the day, you'll actually realize it's better?
0: It's better. Um, it's it's cheaper and it's better. And, and if you get even a little bit good at it, mm-hmm. it's, like, so rewarding and you're affecting exactly what's going in it, right? It's certainly better than... Um, been buying something at a restaurant or you know processed food or anything like that yeah i've always said like if i was going to do a cookbook it was going to be a cookbook that has no recipes in it That's mm. all of just about how to cook in general mm. because that's all you have to learn because what happens is people follow the recipe yeah and the problem with following the recipe is that you're like oh man i don't have a quarter teaspoon of coriander and then you're like, okay, I'm gonna go to the store. Real quick. <laughs> and it's like, you don't need that quarter <laughs> teaspoon of coriander, dude. You don't need any of it. Yeah. You just you go into your refrigerator and you go, I got this, I got that, I got this other thing. Okay, I can make something out of it, mm-hmm. right? And the way you do that, I make it sound really easy, but as you just learn to cook, mm-hmm. you don't learn how to follow a recipe. But you
1: know? I think that goes also back to the trust thing. Like, I, you find a restaurant, and you're like, oh, I know what this person's gonna do. Yeah. I don't know in terms of like it's gonna be pork broth but like you know i know it's gonna be good yeah and thoughtful
0: well that's uh you know hopefully what we're all going for is like being a quality restaurant hmm. um and yeah you know taking care of people does that start with you being nice to your folks though like no, your I'm, people? I'm definitely not nice to them i'm de- no <laughs> uh you know, that's the- i mean in terms of
1: like respecting them because this is one of the things we were talking about outside with the silver bullet like how do you change this industry to one where, you know, it verges on exploitation sometimes when, it, when you think about, like, what people get paid sometimes and, like, yeah. the amount of work that goes into it. Like, how do you take care of your people so they do a better job of taking care of
0: the cash? That's it. Is you just try and take care of your people as best you can. There is a certain, that is – it is work and mm-hmm. it is hard work and that we can't just, like, be like, hey, guys, let's just all take the day off today. Um, and just go to the park instead. Whereas like, I, that's the interesting thing about this business and why it's so hard and why it will be hard forever Mm -hmm. is that every day we do it every day. It's not as if we have, we, we open the restaurant, we make the food, we serve the guests and we close it down every day. I have friends that do other things and they're like, I've been working on the same project for four years. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I do, I work on the same project every day right every day I make the project I do the show and I close it down every day and they're like I don't understand that and I'm like I don't understand how you go to work every day and you don't finish your work every day and so it is a tough business and and there's no we're never going to get away from that because it is putting on the show every single night so the best you can do realistically is just try and take care of the people that are here be night be good to them be concerned about if they're able to do it how they're doing mm-hmm. you know m- mentoring them trying to you know coaxing the best out of them and not just using them.
1: this episode of the monkey dish was made possible by our producer chris olson and editor kate hurling with theme music by john Dealey and the 41 players i'm your host Wayne clark Don't forget to rate and subscribe wherever you found us. Bye.